Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. In 2006, for what was supposed to be a six-month contract, Elizabeth Gowing moved to Kosovo with her partner. Fifteen years later, they divide their time between the UK and Kosovo, and Elizabeth is busy with a thriving writing career about life in the region, along with the Ideas Partnership, an NGO she founded in 2009 to focus on education, cultural heritage, and environmental challenges in the region. Before moving to Kosovo, Elizabeth worked in primary education and education policy in London. The Ideas Partnership empowers and supports people in need through education, health, and social welfare, and programs such as literacy classes, arts, and dance sessions. The nonprofit also works to protect cultural heritage and the environment while promoting a culture of volunteerism and philanthropy detached from political or religious affiliation. In addition to all of this incredible work, Elizabeth is the owner of Sapoon, a prize-winning social enterprise that offers employment to village and minority women, along with support for their children's education. The effort promotes Kosovo's traditional craft of filigree in eco-friendly products, including tote bags, cards, and bookmarks. I had the great fortune of meeting Elizabeth at an online writer's retreat during the pandemic, and we quickly became friends and started a group of writers who meet every week virtually from around the world. We support one another, and we make time for ourselves and for our little community to write online and be in concert with wonderful creative people from all over the globe. Elizabeth is the author of five books, four of which are about Kosovo and the Balkans and the lessons she has learned there. I'm so excited to welcome Elizabeth Gowing as my next guest on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to hear about your journey in Kosovo. I know it began as what you thought would be a short stay and and now you're putting down roots. So tell me what you love about the region and, and how you have found uh, purposeful pursuits there. Yeah, so we came out here in 2006 for with my partner's job, but it was supposed to be a six-month contract. So we were obviously not very good at estimating time <laughs> 15 <laughs> years later. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think if I'd known it was going to be 15 years, I would never have agreed to come. You know, six months felt like a kind of safe time that, okay, I could handle anything for six months. But it was really very soon after we arrived that we felt uh how special the connection was and how we wanted it to go on for longer and then longer and we started learning the language um and people were so 
helpful in that and so appreciative when we did try our very basic Albanian and then yeah. as it got less basic it meant we could have more meaningful conversations and so I think the language really helped feel like we were connected with people um, and then we made lots of good friends and we started doing some projects to try to help as volunteers with various of the things that Kosovo needs help with in in the environment or with cultural heritage supporting the lovely museum here. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, we set up our own nonprofit and that then became a sort of an additional way of falling in love with the place. Yeah. And that's the ideas partnership, right? Yeah. 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 What inspired its creation? Tell me how you help people and, and where you see it going. Well, it's really, it's really evolved and probably quite an organic and probably quite healthy way but it means we haven't got a great sort of creation story <laughs> because <laughs> the the really we just saw the need for some kind of vehicle for the little projects we were doing we had little like a campaign against plastic bags for example um we had a project trying to help this ethnological museum which is a beautiful old ottoman house from the 18th century and we wanted to get that more on people's radar um rob my partner ran a literary festival um lots of little things that we just funded largely with our own money and sometimes people would donate a bit of you know they'd give us an envelope and say hey put this towards the good things you do and after a few years of that, we realized this wasn't very transparent and we needed something that would enable us also to um, apply for grants and do more things. But um, we deliberately chose a name that was um, as sort of all-encompassing as possible and didn't pin us down to anything. So the Ideas Partnership in some ways is a great um, expression of what we want to do. You know, we're about new ideas, we're about partnership. And in some ways, <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything. <laughs> um, and that's probably quite good because really it was, um, I was running uh, after school English clubs with volunteers and training people on uh -huh. uh, to, to be teachers for that. We were doing these environmental projects, we were doing cultural projects. And that's how we would have, if we'd found a name that summed up a bit of English teaching and a bit of um, anti-plastic bagging and a little <laughs> bit of cultural heritage, then that's what we'd have been stuck with. Instead of which, we had this sort of vehicle ready for when we did have our kind of creation story moment, when we did um, suddenly discover this vast need and that I was sort of bizarrely and uniquely place to be able to help at, hmm. at first just one child and then her friends and then her community and, and so it's gone on and that's really um a, a totally different bit of work from uh -huh. anything we'd done with the ideas partnership before but we were we had our our nonprofit all registered and ready to to launch into action as a result so tell me about that story tell me about that child so that our listeners can hear the whole thing yeah, and, and that's the, I mean, that's the moment that was the real epiphany and the, the life-changing moment for me, particularly. And actually, I think as a result, uh, it's been a life-changing um, experience for lots of people, for lots of our volunteers, for certainly lots of the families that we work with and the children who we've enabled into school. But the, it was that first nine-year-old girl who I just met by chance, who told me that she wanted to go to school, but that the school had told her she was too late oh. which of course I mean doesn't make any sense Kosovo's laws and you know it's signing of international conventions and everything guarantees yeah. education so it doesn't make sense for a nine-year-old to be too late um but uh, sure enough when I went to the school to kind of check up on her story the school said oh yeah she can't come unless she can pass a test hmm. which 
I mean, as as a friend of mine said, it's a bit like having to prove you're healthy to get into hospital because you know, how can you pass a test if you're not in school? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that I said to her then, okay, well, um, you know, we can see if uh, I can help you pass this test, but let's see if the school has perhaps misunderstood something. So I went to the ministry and uh, spoke to the official there for school attendance. I said, I think there's been a misunderstanding because this little girl wants to go to school. And she said, I, ah, yeah, children like that are just too hard to teach. Mm, so wow. it was that comment that really, you know, riled me <laughs> enough to want to, uh, to prove, well, for a start to prove that no child's too hard to teach and, and yeah. to, to get her into school. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so you created programs then that could sort of be that safety net for children like that? Yeah. And to be honest, I was at first just thinking of her because I hadn't understood that it was such a, a, you know, widespread problem. So I said to her, okay, I can teach you. And it was her who said, can my friends come, which, you know, is just the great sort of first step of being an ambassador and um, passing on change in your community. And so I mean, I still had no idea, thankfully, again, (laughs) no Uh idea um, how many friends we were talking about. So I thought that this would be I don't know. Well, I said, let's go and visit your neighbors and see who might be interested. So we went, me and a friend of mine with her and her father, uh-huh. and we visited 18 houses in her immediate neighborhood. And in 18 houses, we found 21 children oh. who were in the same situation as, oh. as her. Wow. So that's when it really turned from being just one child to suddenly realizing this was a much bigger issue and a systemic problem. And, yeah. and I had all that fear of, well, really, am I biting off something bigger than I can chew. And yeah. So did you work with the ministry to try and resolve this problem? Or it sounds like it was probably quite, quite larger than you thought at the time. Yeah, and exactly. I had a a big debate about, well, what should I do? Was the right thing to do to work with those 21 children and Uh anyone else that was probably around? Or was the thing to do to try to change the policy and to tackle the ministry? Yeah. And I had a very wise friend who who was volunteering with me in the uh, in the community as well, and she said, "You do both." And mm. you know that was just such a smart bit of advice that if you do have to be bottom up. And we yeah. spent two hours a day doing lessons. That was me and her and other volunteers teaching, uh-huh. ten till twelve. But then in the afternoons, we spent two hours trying to work on the big picture stuff and working with UNICEF and the ministry and the media and raising awareness about this issue. And I've mm. that was very smart learning for me that, in my opinion, you have to do both. You can't, it's too easy to say, I'm just working with that one family and that's yeah. that's me done. And it's too easy also to say, well, look, I managed to have a meeting with a ministry official. So that's my contribution because the reality is those 21 children would still be out of school. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you've received prizes for your work as well. I know the EU prize for Roma integration and that the president of Kosovo awarded you the mother Teresa award. And I know there are others, you know, tell me, I know that it's not your nature to just sing your own praises, but tell me a little bit about how that felt to receive such recognition and um, awards for your work. Well, it felt wonderful, um, really wonderful, and a real endorsement of having achieved something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I'm, you and I met over um, Tara Moore's work and the whole yes. issues of unhooking from praise and gold yes. stars. And I'm a yes. huge seeker of gold stars from in my life, from myself. You know, like picking <laughs> the thing off the list or doing the achievement. And and I also realized how dangerous 
that is. And so I am more proud than I can say of having those awards and they mean a lot to me. But I also know that that's not a very helpful thing to be. Um, <laughs> yes. And I also know and the immediate and that's why it's not healthy is that the you know the the day after each of those prizes is that fear of well I'm not worthy of this this huge imposter syndrome this sense of well now I'm paralyzed because I you know what if I screw up I'm going to be letting so many more people down and so oh, no. you know it comes with all of that but the great thing about any of the the recognitions that we've had has been the recognition not just, of course, for me, but for all of the huge team, the, the staff that we now have who are all Kosovan, half of them are from the communities that we're working with, uh, all of the volunteers, all of the people who donate to our work, you know, because we have, you know, hundreds of people who are individual donors. And so it, it also felt like a lovely way of being able to say, you see, you know, this was not a crazy idea. You see your com- contribution has is really recognised. And so... Yeah, it is. It is frightening <laughs> to, to get those awards, but yeah, I am. <laughs> well, and I think it's a validation for the work, but it also helps to um, further the work. You know, so you get those awards, and and yes, we can let it go to our heads and make it about us, but really, it's about saying to the next granting foundation, you know, look at this. This is meaningful work. Could you please contribute to it? And so those awards do help to generate, you know, more progress and and more support. So. Um, a reframing I think you know <laughs> so well, and also so, I'm, I'm so grateful for example the president of Kosovo who awarded um, me the Mother Teresa prize she you know she could have just awarded the prize and and ticked that off her list but yeah. she has also remained a, a really wonderful ally for our work and and a great um supporter and endorser of what we do not just in that one prize but has continued to be so in fact I was in touch with her office today about coming to the ceremony that we're having next week about uh, celebrating the progress on our new community center that's being built in the Mm. in the community where we work so you know that it it didn't feel also like a kind of empty gesture from her it felt like actually a very meaningful relationship with with her which has been hugely helpful for for that's wonderful yeah it takes a community it takes so many people coming together to make big change like that so um and working at it every day so that's really wonderful i'm just so impressed and inspired um, so your work is tied deeply, it seems, to a philosophy of helping people in need. And I'm just curious about what sparked that philosophy. Like, did it come from your childhood or was there a pivotal moment when you realized that that this really drove your life's work? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I certainly feel that my parents and my childhood set me up with this kind of expectation that, uh, yeah, you had to contribute and pay your way. And I think um, one of the the sayings by Maya Angelou that I've found really helpful for myself, but also to explain to other people what I and what the Ideas Partnership is trying to do is um, when you get, give, and when you learn, teach. Mm. And for me, the the when you get, it doesn't just mean when you get money, then you, know, you should give some of it away, mm-hmm. although I do believe that. But it's also when you get the huge privilege, for example, that I have had to have a happy, loving childhood, then pass that on. Or when you get a second chance because you screwed up, but somebody allowed you to you know, make good anyway, mm-hmm. then pass that on. And so I feel that even if, you know, that that's enough, it doesn't have to be, it's not a philosophy of great altruism. It's just when you get give and when you learn teach, that's, if we all did that, that's enough to keep the world turning. Absolutely. Happy. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing, um, which I know is also how we met through Tara Moore's writing retreat. Um, and I love that we keep writing together every week. It's really special. Um, it's a highlight of my week. So I'm really grateful yeah, me for it. Too. <laughs> um, so tell me, when did you begin writing? And, you know, how do you find your stories? Um, well, I guess I've always written. I mean, it, that has always been a really important thing for me. I remember the first book that my mother typed up on her typewriter for me of poems about insects when I was six, if I remember rightly. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it had a staple in it, so it was a book. <laughs> you know, that felt very exciting. Um, and yeah, that that's always been important to me. And I actually wrote a lot of poetry and some short stories, which were in anthologies and won competitions and things. I was feeling like I was sort of just emerging um, into that world uh, 15 years ago when we moved to, to Kosovo. And in fact, I had a book that I um, had submitted to an agent and had she was interested in it and she was giving me feedback on uh, restructuring it. And so I was working through that when in a huge rush, uh, my partner got this job in, in Kosovo and, and we came out. And I spent basically the first three months beating myself up about not doing the work on this mm. book, which felt like it was at such an exciting point. And I felt like I was messing up and missing this opportunity by not working on it. Yeah. And then Rob, my partner said one day, you know, can you just stop thinking about the book you're not writing and get on <laughs> with finding a book that you are writing, yeah. which was really smart advice. Um, I mean, I think smart advice sort of metaphorically <laughs> for yeah. all aspects of life. Yeah. And so, um, I realized that actually being in Kosovo, you know, there was a whole book there and it was ridiculous to be thinking about this other book, which was set in the UK and was sort of part of a life I had left behind. Yeah. Um, and so I started collecting material then for my first book about coming to Kosovo and about that. Um, well, the book is called Travels in Blood and Honey, mm. Becoming a Beekeeper in Kosovo. And so it was about the contrast between this land of war, which I had expected and been sort of led to believe I was going to be finding in Kosovo and mm -hmm. instead this land of honey and this lush um, landscapes and this wonderful hospitality and the fact that I did become a beekeeper in my first year in Kosovo so I huh. started learning about the the kind of traditions and the village life through that um, and so, yeah, very wise advice from Rob. <laughs> that was yeah. where I got my first stories. <laughs> Lovely. And you contribute journalistically. You've written five books, about four of which are about Kosovo, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, five books plus bits of freelance writing. So I did quite a lot of regular writing for the BBC's Radio 4 for mm -hmm. their program called From Our Own Correspondent. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had bits published on the BBC website. And so I love all of those are travel stories of various kinds, but it's that feeling of joining the world up and wanting to share stories that I've had the privilege of being able to travel and speaking Albanian and being able to hear about those sort of slices of life. And I know that most people in the UK or in the English speaking world have not had those opportunities. And so I feel very lucky to have the chance to be the connection between those. That's beautiful. You know, I teach a lot about finding your voice, especially for women at midlife. And um, it's interesting because when I did my poetry degree, it was um, really sort of a, a journey to find my voice. And I know that I read a lot of the writers that represented my communities, my geographic region, um, things like that, just to sort of understand how they did what they did. And I know, I remember, I don't know if this happened for you, but I remember unconsciously emulating the writers I was reading until a certain point happened where 
I sort of broke through and was writing in my own voice. But I remember a professor telling me that you needed to go through that. You almost needed to try on different kinds of writing or different ways of doing it before you stumbled into your own. And I wonder if you if you could describe what your voice is and how how you solidified that. You know, was it part of the the travels? Was it was it at a certain point in your life? Um, and then how does that voice play out in your writing, especially when you're meeting all these local voices too? Um, the, the compliment that I love most, which I get occasionally from people who know me, is when they read one of my books and they say, oh, it was just like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And that oh. for me feels really, I get, it's the same thing. I love when people have found a photo of me online and then say, oh, I recognized you immediately because I'm <laughs> like, okay, so I wasn't putting makeup on. I wasn't pouting. <laughs> and I feel like that's a kind of metaphor for also what I'm not trying to do in my writing. So I love it if if my voice in my writing is like my voice in in conversation too because it feels authentic I suppose and that's important to me to to be authentic Um, and having said that I mean I agree with you with the process so my first book I've written these five that you've mentioned but there's one other which is um, a romantic novel a terrible romantic novel (laughs) (laughs) which I feel like I just had to write you know to kind of It was as if I was proving to myself that I could write a book, but I didn't want to do it in my own voice. So I wrote a book that is nothing like what I'm interested (laughs) in or the way I normally kind of see the world. So yes, maybe I did have to go through that, that process. Yeah, I love that. So what have you learned about yourself by living in Kosovo? You know, the, the culture must be different from what you knew and how has it shaped or inspired you or somehow merged with what was already there? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it's difficult to dissociate in some ways because it's like, what have I learned from the last 15 years? I can't tell (laughs) how much of that is because of being in Kosovo. But um, definitely the thing that's the most obvious to me and I think to others who know me is um, the spontaneity of Kosovo, which is generally a wonderful thing. It's sometimes less wonderful in that sometimes it's part of chaos or a lack of systems or a lack of forethought. But generally it's people um, being responsive to a mood, to a situation, being able to yeah, act on an instinct and um, seize a moment, which are things that I think my culture in Britain is, is not so good at. And certainly, and I was a particularly extreme example of that culture before coming here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I would pre-plan to a ridiculous degree I would, um, you know, I'd be the kind of person who'd be trying to arrange having a coffee with you sort of seven weeks out and you know, <laughs> say, well, I could do one fifteen on that day. But, you know. um, and I remember the first time a Kosovan friend rang me and said, are you free for a coffee? And I sort of reached for my diary and started leafing through these large and very full pages. And she was like, no, I mean, now, you know, are you free now for a coffee? And, um, and I found that quite, quite unsettling. Um, and then unsettling to know just how unsettling it was really, because, you know, why not just go for a coffee? Um, and so that is definitely something I have, I mean, my Kosovan friends would still tell you that I, you know, it's laughable <laughs> that I put things in my diary, but I'm at least only a few days in advance now rather than weeks. And I appreciate wow. that, that myself. I remember the first time I moved my iTunes onto Shuffle and I thought, 
this I never ever had iTunes on shuffle <laughs> and now I, I've embraced it oh my gosh you're giving me so much to ponder about my own uh rigidity so thank you for that lesson <laughs> I really appreciate it wow that's really interesting um you know I wanted to ask you about your work with Edith Durham the woman who inspired your second book and you've said that she inspired you to understand that importance of balancing the personal and professional claims on us so I'd love to hear more about that yeah, she was a very interesting woman. I mean, she's an interesting phenomenon in that um, I'm guessing you'd never heard of her. I'd never yeah. heard of her. Probably most listeners haven't heard of her. Uh -huh. um, and yet in Kosovo and Albania, she is really a household name. I mean, hmm. uh, one of the main squares in the capital here in Pristina is named after her. Pretty much every city in Kosovo has got an Edith Durham Street and there's a few hmm. schools. She was the first woman to appear on a Republic of Kosovo stamp. So, wow. I mean, she she's a very um, familiar name. And it seems so strange that in England, which is where she's from, people, you know, haven't heard of her. Uh -huh. um, and I think they they ought to have heard of her because she was very inspiring and, and also in so many fields. So she, um, and you mentioned midlife. One of the things I also find inspiring about her is that she stayed at home looking after her mother. She, she was unmarried and she was the eldest unmarried daughter. And so she uh, looked after her mother's uh, when her mother was unwell. Mm -hmm. Until she had, at the age of 37, what we would probably now call a, a nervous breakdown. Mm. And the doctor prescribed travel um, mm. in a rather sort of glorious way. And he said, it doesn't matter where, just get away as far as possible. Huh. Perhaps in brackets, from your mother. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh -huh. So she took a, a trip and her trip happened to, it was a cruise that uh, she stopped off down the Dalmatian coast and went inland at Montenegro. And that's where she just discovered this land that seemed so different and so um, undiscovered and uh yet and unchanged for so many centuries mm -hmm. and so she went back and made this deal with her mother that she would continue to look after her for nine months of the year in mm -hmm. exchange for three months every year where she could go adventuring and she mm -hmm. then wrote she wrote seven books about her travels in the Balkans when her mother died she then moved to live in in the Balkans herself mm -hmm. and she although she hadn't been trained um as an anthropologist she hadn't gone on to higher education at all she mm -hmm. um became vice president of the royal anthropological society uh, institution rather she she was the first woman to hold that position wow. Um, so she became very respected in her field for her travels and her writing and um, her accounts of a world that's in Britain and certainly British women, but even British men had really not trodden um, mm. at that time, like 120 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it's that it's that business of making a deal with your mother um, or with <laughs> whoever it is that's the claims on your um, on your time to yeah. kind of balance your need to go adventuring with your obligations and and the things you you want to do from love from yes. your, for your family. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, on this show, we talk about how people find meaning and work and purpose in life. And as we've talked about, um, look at how people find their voice, um, whether that's professionally or personally or both. So I wonder if we, in closing, could talk a little bit about what advice you might offer our listeners about going in pursuit of their own purpose and how they can fill their work with meaning. Yeah, I think it's something that I've uh, thought about more consciously in the last few years. Um, 
And I particularly, you've probably, I don't know, maybe every single one of your guests says <laughs> to me, looking for meaning, um, the, the really core advice I got was from Frederick Beekner, this idea of uh, finding where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And mm. I, I think that's a really lovely um, way of approaching it because mm -hmm. it's, it means that you start from thinking about joy rather yes. than obligation. Yes. Um, but you do keep the world's needs in mind. And I particularly had a, a feeling as the Brexit debates was raging in Britain, mm -hmm. actually not the debate, it wasn't debate, I don't mind debate, <laughs> as the Brexit um, kind of fracture lines and fear and frustration and hatred in some cases was yeah. raging in Britain. And I sort of turned on my Twitter feed one day and just thought, I can't bear this. You know, I just, mm -hmm. there is people just not talking to each other, not listening to each other. Yeah. Um, and where are the kind of, where's the positive stories in this horrible shouty um, feed? Yeah. And I, I felt like I wanted to do something um, or I wanted to at least take some steps towards um, addressing that. And so that's what I felt at that point was the world's need. And I don't uh -huh. just Britain, but I mean, I think that's a phenomenon across the world of these oh, yeah. um the shouty and the flat fractured and the not listening. Um, and a bit like I said before, I feel like I am very lucky in having the chance to travel and living in some of these countries that are not so well known yeah. and wanting to share those stories. And what I realized I could do that, you know, my great joy is in storytelling, mm -hmm. but what I could do would be to help other people in telling their stories and then yeah not just through me, but to, to help them um, finding their voices and um, sharing what they've done. And so a few years ago, I set up very consciously um, to offer new consultancy and training mm -hmm. specifically for nonprofits in mm. um, how to tell their stories. And having been at the Ideas Partnership, which started, you know, just as, as Rob and me and our friend <laughs> in Kosovo, and is now, I mean, we're still small, but we have a staff of uh, 28, not all wow. full-time, but 28 people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're, I've seen that growth and I know what it's like trying to be the storyteller, to be the social media person, yeah. to be a kind of one-man show trying to yeah. um, share all of that. And that's a gap in the market. There's plenty of organizations that have got huge departments to do their marketing, but uh, there are more charities that are doing great work where there's yeah. only one person or three people or whatever yeah. but, and their skill set may not be in telling their stories yeah so yeah I've really loved very specifically kind of seeing that Frederick Beekner advice and mm -hmm. um working on what that might mean for me and definitely my greatest professional moments of the last couple of years have been when I've been able to um share my storytelling um skills and experience but for a kind of greater good and greater um, opportunity for people to listen to each other's stories. That's wonderful. Well, Elizabeth Gowing, thank you so much for sharing your stories and uh, being a guest on the Make Meaning podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.